Amen. <clears throat> Before we turn to Isaiah 44, a quick uh, announcement. Pardon our appearance in the bathrooms. We've uh, around the sink. We've getting the material cleaned. So right now it's under construction. Anyway, it may not be a big thing to you. But it's a big thing to me. Acts chapter 44. We left off at verse 20. Oh, sorry, Isaiah. Who said Acts? I got the microphone. <laughs> All right. Isaiah chapter 44. Uh, redemption on God's calendar. That's the title for this evening's message. And uh, talk about redemption is basic Christianity. To redeem is to make something acceptable in spite of its negative qualities and is when it, talking about salvation for sure. In society, however, redemption means to buy something back that is given, like if you take it to a pawn shop and you go and get it back. Maybe you cash in on some refund that goes along with the purchase. In the Old Testament days, as opposed to society, in their society, if an Israelite sold himself into bondage, into slavery, which he could do, there were laws covering that, he could be bought back. He'd be redeemed. And Sometimes they found themselves in debt and needed uh, to be helped, uh, a redeemer, such as the case of Naomi and Ruth. And the redeemer had to be one that was willing to pay the price and was capable of paying the price to save someone from their condition. And uh, the plan called for a near relative who was willing, and that would have been Boaz in that story, the most famous mention of a redeemer in the Old Testament to the Christian is what Job said in Job 19, verse 25. I know my redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And then he adds, and I will see him in the flesh. What a remarkable prophecy. Job, probably the oldest book in the Bible, and uh, the events that took place in Job's day were likely in the time either right before or around the days of Abraham. By the time we get to the New Testament, our understanding of redemption is developed a lot more. Of course, it refers to salvation from sin, from death, from the wrath of God, which is real. In Revelation talks about the wrath of the Lamb, which is the wrath of God. Uh, you know, we know about God's love, but there's that, that judgment side of him. There's no nonsense. And why salvation and redemption is so beautiful is because God spares us the wrath, those who would come to him, those who desire to have God real to them. And for the Christian, God is real. Even though we go through times where he seems too far away, he's real to us. In the letter to the Romans, Paul wrote, For we know that the law is spiritual, things of God, his rules. But I am carnal, sold under sin. But I have a problem. In spite of all God's word, the beauty that goes with it, it's too much for me. It's a high standard, and it doesn't lower. And I need a redeemer. Someone who can afford to cover the damage, and someone who is willing, and that, of course, is Christ. In this section of Isaiah, 
And I'm glad we, uh, now, now I am, I wasn't too happy last Wednesday when we ended up splitting the chapter, but uh, going over it, I was very pleased with just how, what I was getting from it. And I hope any time I come into the pulpit, I'm simply sharing what blessed me first. I think that's how it should be. That which I first received, I gave to you, as Paul said. In this section, God is telling the Jewish people that redeeming sinners sold under sin has been on his calendar. It's not something that just popped up. He was, it's not something he was not prepared. He was prepared to redeem them long before they knew about redemption. Long before they understood they had a need for redemption as a people. The Old Testament Jews understood the role of the Redeemer, the Goel, Boaz. But since Christ has come, available to us is a better understanding of all that went into the book of Ruth and all that went into the prophecies concerning this coming anointed one, as we know as Jesus of Nazareth. We have a greater understanding. God knew from creation that he would have to act to redeem sinners. Or else he could have just walked away from the whole thing. To create, God only had to speak. In the beginning, and physical creation became. Spiritual creation was already in existence. We don't know how long before, but we know it existed before. All he had to do in creation is speak. But to, to redeem man, he had to suffer. He had to bleed. No blood on creation. Love and blood are on redemption. So this, this now gives us this better understanding of who God is. And there were others who did not have our understanding and loved God just as much as we do. They did not have the prophecies we have stacked up. And God was real to them. As Jesus said, you know, Thomas, it's, it's a nice thing. You've seen some things and it blessed your heart. But there are others who are going to believe without seeing what you have seen. Titus, Paul wrote to Titus. Titus was a, a disciple of Paul and became a pastor. He said, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Every law... So if you try to name, okay, here's one that God can't redeem me from, you'd be wrong. Every lawless deed, not some of them, not most of them. And then he adds, and purify for himself his own special people. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's how we become pure. It's what he has done and what we have accepted. And then it adds, zealous for good works. That's the outcome, our appreciation. Thank you. That, God has to be real to you to be zealous for him. There are some folks, they're zealous for God, but really they're in their own strength. Look what I can do. Look what I can give. And there's a humility that is missing. So what God is doing in this chapter is God is telling the Jews through the prophet Isaiah that their temple is going to be destroyed. Their beloved temple, Solomon's temple, the first temple, as much as they love their church, their national church, is going to be destroyed. I bring that up in verse 28 again. He's not the only prophet that was doing this. Jeremiah will repeat it. Jeremiah ridiculed the Jews. It was, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, it's going to be wiped out. The Jews would go to Babylon 
Isaiah was telling them, again, 120 years before it happened. He won't live to see these things. But he prophesied them with such conviction, and conviction in the sense of he was convinced, with a uh, conviction that can only come from the touch of God. He also said that God would redeem Israel from their captivity. He would even have Gentiles be a part of rebuilding their temple, their second Jewish temple. There's a third to be, it's not yet. Isaiah then told them in verse 15 of chapter 46, and he mentions it here in this chapter too, that God had long been, or may I put it this way, God had long had this on his calendar to redeem the Jewish people from their captivity in Babylon, from the loss of the temple, and there's a final redemption of the Jewish people as a nation and as individuals that's still going to happen. Not happening yet, but the stage is being set. And you know, if you have ever been part of a theater, you know when they start changing the scenery, you can get an idea of what's going to, and the next scene is going to be. There's one other thing about what is happening here in this chapter, and that is that Isaiah was telling the people, and the prophets were, the Bible, the Old Testament was telling the Jewish people, and any of those who would come into Judaism, that God had left a greater meaning to redemption than what they understood in their law, and as a people. And that goes back to what I said, uh, quoting Job, I know my Redeemer lives. Job wasn't Jewish. He was a Gentile. And Job had this word from God. And he shall stand at last on the earth and be killed. He leaves that apart out. We know that. Our greater understanding, he'd be killed on Calvary and rise again. I have no problem with God rising, doing anything he wants to do. Uh, miracles aren't supposed to go, huh, how'd he do that? It's a miracle. God did it. That's, I mean, it's something that are just beyond you. And, you know, you, you get folks, they try to explain how God rolled back the sea and how you cannot. There are laws that we don't know about. And that's nothing new. Who knew about the laws of, uh, well, we knew that there were laws of aerodynamics. I know I use this one a lot, and it's a good one. And I use it, maybe you can use it when you share the faith. The law of aerodynamics, it existed. Man knew that. He could look at birds to see they're flying. It's, you know, it's flight is possible. It just wasn't possible for men. The law of aerodynamics for people was a long way off. And what you have is the law of gravity and the a law of aerodynamics overcoming gravity. So there are other laws. And this is across many uh, fields of life. There are other laws, but they're not contradictory laws. They're complementary laws. Well, now we look at verse 21. Now, we got an idea where the prophet is going with this. He's going to tell the people, you're going to Babylon as prisoners. Your temple will be destroyed. God's going to bring you back. This is not new to him. It's on his calendar. Oh, and by the way, you New Testament Christians, the Holy Spirit says through the prophet, I have a greater redemption coming for all mankind. All mankind is redeemed, but not saved. You have to come and get it. 
It's available. That's the, the, the price of redemption has been paid. But if you don't come get it, you don't get Well, we understand that. If, you hit, if, you, if you're one of those people that play lottery and you hit the lottery for a large amount of money, come see me. <laughs> you have to go get it. You have to redeem it. You have to take that ticket and say, hey, I, I, this, I match, my numbers match. Or else you don't get it. But how come when it comes to God, ooh, we can't accept that? Because of the blindness that Satan has put on people. Now look at verse 21, if you would, at uh, Isaiah 44, not Acts. <laughs> Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Well, before we get to that punchline, you will not be forgotten by me. Because we want to hear that when we're suffering. Or even if it's a slow suffering. We're <laughs> just miserable in life, long term. But anyway, uh, the prophet, he has said these things already. He's been saying them. He's going to continue to say them. He's always going to add a little something more. He's, he's driving these points home. As the writer to Ecclesiastes Solomon said, you know, uh, the words of a scholar are like well-driven nails. The prophet is reminding his audience once more of their true identity, of who you are. You know, a lot of Christians don't know who they are. That's why they, they think they're, they're, they're Jews. They think they live in the Old Testament. We're ministers of a new covenant. We're not Jews. We're Christians. And Jews can be Christians equal with us. We with them. There's no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian. Just those walls of division are gone. They, they existed for a reason. But they're not there anymore. They were Israel, the servant of Yahweh. That the, the one that said in the beginning, God created, the one that met Moses on Mount Sinai, formed by God and never forgotten by him. No matter what, God has never forgotten the Jewish people. Even in their worst days when they were rebelling against him and building little statues to fake gods, abominations out of hell, God, he didn't write them off. While the heathen were fashioning those gods, and then some of the Jews, God was trying to shape Israel, to fashion them. And he says that. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel. It goes back to their original identity, how they came to be who they are. You are my servant. I have formed you. You're, you are my servant. He drives that home. O Israel, you will not be forgotten. And he says this to the New Testament Christian. You are my servants. Servant is not above his master. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And likewise, Paul reminds the Christians about their identity. 1 Corinthians 6, he's talking about first immorality in the church. Christians were doing things that were forbidden. And they're rather flaunting them, boasting about how liberal they were. We're so gracious over here. It doesn't matter that we have all of this sin. And Paul comes in and says, no, you know, all of these sins that you're letting, you think it's no problem, God's going to judge you for this. You better deal with it. That will avoid the judgment, even if you struggle with it. And then he says to them, and such were some of you. When he, when he lines up all of the, you know, you were homosexuals, uh, thieves, liars, whatever it is. He says, such were some of you. Don't forget that. 
When you go ministering to people that are lost, remember you too were once lost. But that doesn't mean that somehow God's rules don't count. It means they count more. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. You were set aside. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's the forming as God formed and shaped Israel does that to us. We're clay in the potter's hands. Now, justified, of course, that's salvation. It's basic Christianity. Justification is salvation. When you come to Christ, when you say, Lord, I am a sinner, I, I repent, I want to turn from my sin, I turn to you, I want you to be Lord over my life, to forgive me. I don't deserve the forgiveness, I just need the forgiveness, and you're the only one that can do it, and I come to you. That's justification. At that instant, you're saved. But that's also salvation, but not salvation 1.1. Salvation one. You're set aside. Sanctified means you're set aside. So you have those who have not repented and the sanctified ones who have repented. Justified, sanctified. But then there's part two to sanctification. And that's the development of your Christianity into the Christ likeness state. We are disciples of Christ. Uh, this is an ongoing process of maturity. Working out our, cre- our salvation. We will be like Christ when we die. Not his deity, but his morality. Uh, John, in his first letter, in the third chapter of that first letter, and I've never found First John in Second Peter. I'm just saying. Beloved, we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Now, this is glorification. But we know that when he is revealed, and when we actually see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Things will change. So, justification, you're saved. Sanctification, you're set aside. And while you're set aside, you're developed into a Christ-like character. You pursue righteousness. And then glorification is when you leave this life. You will never be tempted to sin ever again. You will not sin ever again. Those things will be gone. You will not die. You will not suffer pain. Oh, that's not heaven. God promises heaven there is no pain, nor sorrow, nor tears, nor death. For the former things have passed away. This is proving ground. This is how you get to there. By faith. And so... The identity of who we are is critical to sharing our faith. For that to happen, for a Christian to lay hold of their identity, Christ has got to be real to them. Not somebody else's God. Not my, my, my dad's father, uh, God. Not my mom's God. My God. I have to meet him. Now, uh, we live in a day age where Satan is corrupt. He corrupts everything. He's trying to corrupt people identifying these lunatics. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want, hopefully not such for some of you. Someone who identifies with, and it's always a, a, a noble creature, I identify with a lion. Why not a tick? Why don't you identify with a bloodsucker? So they pick and choose. Okay, I'll go along with that on one condition. All the creatures that you identify with, all of them have to unanimously agree you are one of them. 
And we can prove this. We just go right down to the zoo, throw you over the wall, and see what the apes do to you. Anyway, all right, that's my little thing on this identity crisis that Satan has really pulling off here. Uh, people just insisting that they can be other than who they are. You can do that, and you're, you're just lying. For the Christian, we're supposed to be telling the truth. I identify with Christ. I belong to him. Clumsy as I may be in pulling off the faith, as many times as I fall, I still identify with the mercy he gives, which is new every morning. And aren't we glad? Verse 22, I've blotted out, here it comes, like a thick cloud, your transgressions, and like a cloud, your sins return to me, for I have redeemed you. Now, we've gone over this. These promises, these superlative uh, words towards Israel apply to Christians. We, we went over that, so I'm not going to revisit that. You have to listen to previous messages. Start at Genesis. Uh, anyway, this presupposes that they were sinners and that the sin they committed had to be blotted out. It was there. Remember, Satan did not start out damned. He was a high-ranking angel of God, a cherub. And uh, the Bible gives an indication that he even, you know, was a musician. And that's not a slight against not all musicians, just the ones you don't like. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, and that's true with everything, or is it not? Because you could say, well, Judas was a pastor. He was, in the sense that God sent him out, and he did miracles. And so Satan, he did not start out damned, and Judas Iscariot did not either. He was, so, he was given every chance to not be who he became. Both got themselves blotted out, not their sin, them, the soul. One sinned in heaven, in the spiritual realm, and the other sinned on earth. Because sin violates the will of God. To become sin, what do I have to do for it to be sin? You have to go against what God said. You violate God. We covered his rights of creatorship already. Psalm 51, this is David writing, after he committed just a terrible sin. Murder was involved, uh, and and, and, uh, just horrible sin. And he writes to God, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And God did that. David didn't get up in God's face, yeah, well, everybody's doing it. Or, you know, how do I know you're God? he, He just repented eventually. It took him like a year. Psalm 25, again, David Remember not the sins of my youth. We have a song like that. Remember not the sins of my youth. Nor my transgressions according to your mercy remember me. Not according to your law. I, I don't, when I stand before God, I'm not going to... I want justice. <laughs> the trap door would open. I, I want mercy and grace. And he is abundant in those two things. Had God not done so, who could survive? I have blotted out like a thick cloud, verse 22, your transgressions. What if he did not do that? Then there'd be no hope. Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4. If you, Yahweh, 
should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand but forgiveness is with you? So this makes us love Jesus so much. This is why we, we sing songs to him and get emotional over things of Christ. Because he's real to us. And as the years go by, of course, you may get a little, uh, develop a little bursitis on, on, on the you know, spirit. Where you're, little, you're fighting being jaded. If you fight being this jade experience, it will pass. And you will mature. And uh, just you, you, you're just mellow. At least that's my... I think I've mellowed. You might disagree. I don't want to know because I'm not that mellow yet. <laughs> anyway. Return to me, he says here in verse 22. For I have redeemed you. I have bought you back. And again, the greater meaning of redemption is coming. Bought off the slave block... With holy blood for us. This is the, going to the New Testament. We've really covered the Old Testament understanding of redemption. And what he's saying to them, you will be taken to captivity to Babylon, but I will bring you back. It's going to be me. It's on my calendar. It's not going to be this, ooh, look what happened. We escaped Babylon. No, you were delivered from Babylon. God called it long before it happened. And the prophets kept that in front of the people. The righteous Jews, they, they got it. Uh, anyway, return to me, for I have redeemed you. First Corinthians, fast forward, New Testament, chapter 6. <clears throat> for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's, which belong to God. Uh, and there's that uh, sanctification, that development. Uh, you know, the Alan Redpath, the conversion of the soul is a miracle of the moment, justification. But the manufacturing of a saint is the task of a lifetime. And that's sanctification 1.1. We are saints. No one votes us into this. You don't have to do so many miracles to get in that club. Uh, You know, you just, Amazon, you don't purchase it on Amazon. Uh, Saint means sanctified. You're separated. It goes back to the sanctification. Uh, And that's why when Paul writes to the churches, to to the saints in Rome, they were living. They were alive. They were not dead people. Uh, so anyway, that's a heresy that is being perpetrated by the largest cult on earth. Uh, coming back to this New Testament understanding, uh, and you say, well, that offends me. Well, change teams. You won't be offended anymore. Line up with the scripture, and uh, you, you, won't, you, you should do better. 2 Corinthians 5, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Read between those lines. Who bled for us, suffered for us on the cross, more than any person has ever suffered. Christ did on the cross because he took our sins on us. Not physically, it's spiritually. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, to be a part of the Godhead and go through that, you, you can't top it. You can't touch it. Well, he continues, Paul does, and that second, that second Corinthian letter is, so, I think, so much sweeter than the first. The first letter, he's got the, he's got the, the belt off, and he's spanking them. In second Corinthians, he said, okay, let's see if we can fix some of this. And then he has a break where he's got to deal with some more knuckleheads in chapter 10. But uh, it's a, I just love second Corinthians I don't care too much for the first one if, if, if I had to, you know. Which one do you want to read? Uh, anyway, 2 Corinthians, that fifth chapter is one of the great ones. 
Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So when you show up as a Christian, do you make it a crime scene or are you bringing the first aid kit to the soul? Sometimes you have to make it a crime scene because you're dealing with somebody who's impenitent and they're just not going to own their sin and sins everywhere. But overall, when we, we're looking for solutions to save souls, not damn them. Even Christ said, to think not that I came into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might live. Understanding who we are, what our mission is. And it's, um, you know, um, not compromising with what sin is, not mingling what the world has with what Christ has given us, but at the same time remembering that, um, you know, we're not better than anybody else, though we are better off as believers. Um, anyway, the calls to return or for those who are lost, who once were not. That's why the re- ret- you can't return if you haven't ever been there. I cannot return to the moon. <laughs> I've not been there. Uh, so when you come across that in Scripture, there's a lot of history baked into that call to return. Uh, God, God, through the prophet Isaiah, is saying to the Jews, this is not who you are. You need to come back to me. The whole story of Israel is that God saves the elected, and those are the ones that choose to respond to his calling. That's how you are elected with, by God. I, sure, you can come into heaven. I elected you come in because you receive what I, the RSVP. We understand that, don't you? Make a, you send out RSVPs, the ones that say, okay, I'm coming. You expect them to come. And you make your plans based on that. Well, that's human. The human is, of course, flawed because a lot of people don't show up. Um, and, and then you, you, you can send hate mail to them. Like, after that, God will bless that. Sarcasm, of course, he won't. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> if you, what would happen if someone listened to that and said, I can? I can. <laughs> so, see? Anyway, all Israel was elected, but only those who did their part and not forsake Yahweh, were saved. Only the Jews that did not turn from him. Some of the seeds of the prophets fell on good soil, and some did not. So, you know, we come to that proverb, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're older, they'll not depart. It's a proverb. It's not a fixed law. You say, well, okay, does does Scripture teaches Scripture? What helps me with that? Well, Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, in explaining our free will. Otherwise, we're just little autotrons, drone bees, and we're not. We're created in the image of God. And even though that image has been marred, enough remains that makes us a creature that is able to make moral decisions beyond instinct. Uh, a, a, A dog, an animal, they're instinctive. But we... We are more than instinctive. We have instincts too. Luke chapter 8, a sower went out to sow his seed. Now, of course, the sower is the Lord, the Spirit of God. The seed is the Word of God, what God says. Violating what God says is the essence of sin. And sin is the abuse of good things. Uh, So, coming back to this verse, Luke 8, 5. And as he sowed... 
Some fell by the wayside. Okay, the wayside is, so you have a big field and you're, you're growing your crop, but you, you want to get to the other side of that field and you don't want to walk all the way around it because it's enormous. So there were paths that would go through the farmer's fields. And those footpaths that were trodden were compacted. And when the farmer sowed seed, the seed that landed on those pathways, of course, wouldn't penetrate the soil. It would remain on the surface. The birds of the air, who scripturally, in most cases, in a parabolic illustration, represent Satan. And if you know anything about raptors, they're some vicious... They, they, are, they, they eat their prey many times while it's still alive. And they got to pin down with one talent. And then they're pecking away, and the thing is, ish. so um, back to this: the seed that fell by the wayside is the word of God that doesn't get into the hard hearts. That's so trampled down through the activity of people things. So coming back, let me keep it in context. A sower went out to sow his seed, and he sowed, and some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. So that part, it was trampled down. Some will get the word of God, but they trample on it. They don't receive it. That doesn't make them hopeless. There's still hope. As long as there's breath, there is hope. And uh, Satan fears that law because he has, all, he has watched the most heinous sinners repent. And David is a great illustration of that. He is a man that was a godly man. He committed a heinous, heinous crimes, plural, and he repented. And God picked him up and continued to use him. God's word is a seed, and when the seed is trampled, it is rejected. And what can God do after that? Force a person to? He's not going to do that. Uh, so, we, you know... What, what you know? Maybe people that resist God, they hear God's voice, and they hide themselves. That's exactly what the first sinners did in their first encounter with God after they became sinners. They used to be with God in the cool of the morning. Adam walked with God, but after they sinned, God came looking for them, and they hid themselves. And they said, "Well, we were naked." And God said, "Who told you that?" He's a, God is not inquiring. He was when God asks a question, He is never looking for enlightenment. He is extracting the answer. It's like a parent. You know, parents will do that. Where'd you get that from? And they know so many times. They know where this is. Who told you that? And they know. They want to hear you admit it, so they can deal with it. Let's get this out in the open. Anyway, verse twenty-three. And based on everything he's been saying about this redemption and God not forgetting them, sing, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. So it's a redemption song. The prophet understood it. And those who were, there were those in tune with Isaiah. They got it too. Um, none of them are named, as we have at least we or others with Jeremiah that are named, but one is Baruch. He's one of the most popular. Uh, he was a, an assistant to Jeremiah, and God gave him a special blessing for hanging in there. But anyway, verse 24, uh, part, let me correct myself. 
I don't use hanging in there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> For abiding with Jeremiah. <laughs> We're clinging. All right, coming back to this. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer. It's personal, is it not? And he who formed you from the womb. I am Yahweh who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. Now you've got to catch God as saying, I, I did that. Nobody else. He's the one person that can brag. <laughs> when it comes to what he, you know, who he is, he, he's not bragging. Not at all. He's teaching. These are truths that they were departing from. Well, you know, some gods, you know, Neptune has the sea. And they just, at that time, Neptune wasn't around in the imagination of men. They had other fake gods. Baal is the god of thunder and, you know, the weather. and oh, just stupid stuff. So here's the difference between all false religions of the world, from Cain, the first recorded false religion, un- until uh, today. And that is the Redeemer. That's the difference. What does it mean to redeem man? Who is the one that redeems them? It is the Creator, the one who made man. The God who created man without sin is the God who saves man from sin. That's the Bible. Now, Galatians, New Testament, chapter 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The Lord pronounces every man guilty. The Ten Commandments has no solution whatsoever. This is what God wants. If you mess up, you're guilty. And the wrath of God abides on you. Well, God has a fix for that. And so Paul writes, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He, he, and again, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, he, he took our punishment for us. Uh, we can understand this to a point and it's a good point. And then it then it just becomes faith. I get it, Lord. I've got enough to believe. I don't need any more. I'm good. Cain's religion came from, who cares? It wasn't God. Elsewhere. Abel's religion, whom Cain murdered, came from God. You say, says who? Who's, where do you get these things? You stand up in a pulpit, where do you get them? None of your bug-eyed business. No, <laughs> quite the opposite. It is your bug-eyed business. <laughs> well, verse 24, thus says the Lord. But see, that doesn't mean anything to the unbeliever because they trample the word. They won't look at the evidence. They're too busy looking to fuss at it. Well, that can't be right. Okay, okay, okay. And, you know, remembering when I was lost, yeah, I can, I can see how difficult it is to see the light. But I, now saved, I, I'm amazed that you can't see the light. So that's this paradox. Verse 24, thus says the Lord. Verse 25, who frustrates the signs of the babblers. We'll get to that in a minute. Verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant. Yeah, God has given us his word, but he backs it up with many infallible proofs through the millennium. Not just in the days of Christ. Who says, in verse 27, that he actually does something. Verse 28, who says, he repeats that, but there it is in the appointment of people. So, he does things with things. He does things with people. Says who? The Lord. That's who. 
the word of God. It is trustworthy, and Satan puts everything he's got into trying to tell lost souls God's word is not trustworthy, but he doesn't stop there. He revisits the sanctified ones, and he comes along later. He says, okay, you know when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, it says the devil departed for a while. Well, he could do the same thing to us. You are strong in your faith for 10, 20 years, and all of a sudden, you're getting hit with doubts and thoughts that you didn't see coming. But remember, God has made you ready for those moments that you should stand. We see it in a microcosm in Peter. God says, when you return to your brethren, you're going to forsake me, Peter. You're going to deny me, more accurately. But, when you, but I have prayed for you. And when you return, and that I have prayed for you is, I'm in this with you, Peter. I'm not leaving you. When you're in trouble spiritually, I'm there with you. I am Yahweh who makes all things, it says in verse 24, all alone by myself, quote unquote. New Testament says this is Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 3, Colossians 1 16, Hebrews 1 1. This is doctrine. This is knowing what you believe and why you believe it, and it's right there on the surface. You don't have to dig deep for that. You don't have to study any of the Greek words to read that in any translation other than Watchtower of the Bible. Uh, again, the God who created man without sin, man did not have sin when God made him, is the God who saves man from the sin man fell into. Verse 25 Speaking of himself, God says, who frustrates the signs of babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. Paul said it this way in the New Testament, seeking to be wise, they have become fools. Uh, they, just, they became too big for their britches is another way to say that. The babblers are those in religions and the heretics that claim the true religion that move forward without God's words. And spiritually speaking, they become babblers. So, I mean, if you say you're a, you have a print shop and you, you print things for people, well, you, you, that, that's not what he's talking about. But if, you then, if that printer then starts talking about things about God that are contrary to God, then he becomes a babbler. And uh, the madness of the false prophet encased they were encased in their failed religions. In this sense, they knew it was false, they saw it was false, and they continued. So if you were one of the magicians that stood against Moses, and his serpent swallowed yours, don't you think you'd change teams? Like, man, I thought I had some right stuff. You got the right stuff. I'm going to forsake that. Tell me about Yahweh. That's not what they did. They doubled down until they perished. First Kings, when they went to Mount Carmel, Elijah said, fine, what, what, let's have the battle of the gods. You build an altar, I'll build an altar. And, I've, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And Isaiah, uh, Jer Jer um, Elijah, who's not in the book of Acts, <laughs> he poured water on his altar. It's just saying, he's saying, listen, just to make you understand, I'm not sneaking a torch Onto this altar when it ignites. Where do you get that kind of faith? I don't have that kind of faith. I'd like to pull up to a gas station and just say, watch this, the God who fills my truck with Petro is the God of... It doesn't work that way. Anyway, 
So they, the prophets of Baal, calling on their God. We read about it in 1 Kings 18. So they cried aloud and cut themselves as their custom. You see their madness? As was their custom. They had done this before. So I guess, you know, when you'd see one of these prophets, if he had short sleeves on or rolled up his sleeves to do something, you'd see the cuts. Maybe he had them on his face. Doesn't tell us. Anyway, as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And as the prophets were wont to do, they ridiculed them. Like we ridicule when we see people today who act like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, their identity things, all this evil, broke, woke stuff. You look at it, you say, this is madness. But they, are, they double down. They, they know this. They just made it up. They don't care. They honor what they make. That's the, the God-haters and the God-makers club wrapped into one. And they are chasing our youth. And we are not going to go down without a fight. We're not going to go down at all. We're going to fight this. Anyway, the prophets, they love to ridicule religious lives. Isaiah did in chapter 47. We'll get it. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. Tell me, Mr. Scientist, the ones that are against God, what can you do for sin and what can you do for death? Nothing. Well, do you have any comfort that you can offer anybody who's grieving the loss of a loved one? Nothing. Can you tell me what's going to happen to me when I die? Nothing. All you can tell me is that I will decompose or be turned into ash or fed to some creature. But you cannot tell me what happens to me. There's more to me than what you see. And my thoughts prove that. You can x-ray my brain. You can hook up electric things to my brain to see its activity. But you can't tell me my thoughts. You can't take a picture of them. They're spiritual. And there's more to me than my thoughts. Bundle in my feelings. Bundle in my instincts. My memories. How come I can think of something from my childhood 20 years ago? (laughs) And... It's like it's right there like I'm watching it on the screen. I I had these socks when I was like three. They were horrible. They were brown and green and tan. And I hated them. And and then they didn't even stay up on my little ankles. (laughs) So I was an undisciplined civilian at the age of three or four. But I can see it. And you have the same kind of things but your socks. Are you going to tell me I'm not spiritual? You're going to tell me that all there is to me is flesh and blood? You're not only lying to yourself, you're mad. The madness of the babblers, the diviners. And then, if I told you we're going to have a seance, you might even chuckle at that. So, you know, yeah, I understand that. But if I tell you about the Ten Commandments, oh no, we won't have any of that. Anyway, coming back... Uh, it's, it's so simple once you know Christ. You just see it all. But when you don't know Christ, uh, that hardened heart won't let the seed in. It tramples God's word. Anyway, 
The world insists to salvage whatever they can about man-made ideas. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You're not going to stumble into understanding who God is. He's going to reveal that to you. That's the only way... We'll get it. the last quote, if I still have it in here, I think a quote Peter, Peter says, has manifested himself in these last days. Uh, that's what the church comes in. That's where the Jews were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. The church is a light to the world. Uh, that's how people are going to find out about God. Uh, it is a revelation. Verse, and Peter talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the book of Revelation. He's talking about the person of Christ. Verse 26 who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his message, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. I will raise up her waste places. Wait a minute. Jerusalem's not destroyed, Isaiah. What are you talking about? The future. I'm talking about the future. And everybody knew he was a prophet of God. Did he do perform miracles? A few. You know, the whole thing with the, the healing of King Hezekiah. At first, you know, to prove that it wasn't him with some faith healing power, he tells the king, you're going to die. And he gets to the courtyard while the, while the king is upstairs praying. Isaiah doesn't know Hezekiah is praying. And Hezekiah calls out to God. And then God says to Isaiah, go back up. And I'm going to let him live 15 more years. You've got to love how that is. You know, uh, if, if I wrote the story, I would say, then I figured it out that here's the solution. But Isaiah portrays himself as, I'm just a servant. I took the message up. I didn't, I didn't do anything. And what does he tell the doctors to do? Rather than go get the needle, uh, put a lump of figs on it. I wonder, what? <laughs> right figs? What kind of figs? You'll figure it out. Anyhow, that's biblical. Uh, where are we? Verse 26. So contrasting the false prophets... With the true prophets, how does one become a true prophet? Well, God validates their ministry. However, however, there is a caveat. God long early, early on said, there are going to be false prophets, and I'm going to use them to see if you believe my word. Deuteronomy 1, and if you've never read Deuteronomy, and you just want a quick overview, chapter 13 is it. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for Yahweh your God is testing you to know whether you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That generation that received that, that generation of adults, had passed through the Sea of Reeds when God parted it. And all Israel went through. That generation was old enough to recall Pharaoh's dead army washed up on the shores when God closed that sea. There was more to what God was giving them than his word. And that is true to this day. God has given us the Holy Spirit. And the one who convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. And that Holy Spirit also comes with this testimony of Christ, which is the approval of our salvation, 
because it's based on the gospel message. And so there will be from time to time signs and wonders. It's going to ramp up during the great tribulation period. But those who abide in God's word will be the ones that prevail. And those who sip the Kool-Aid will be the ones that perish. And one of the outstanding features of false teachings is immorality. There's a justification of sin because that's who Satan is. He can't help himself. And those who follow him are like him. They are of their father, the devil. And they may do a sign, and then they go ahead and, and they're, they're in some sin that is blatant. And they'll justify it. And you'll know that's a false prophet. So, uh, there's a caveat to God confirming with his servants. He confirms. Who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. Long before its fall, God promised to rebuild Jerusalem and the surrounding territories. And today's Israel is fulfilling this before our eyes. Its final stage, the third temple, will be rebuilt. I'm not so sure in our lifetime or before the rapture, but it will be rebuilt. Verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be rebuilt, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Well, again, we covered this already. Cyrus named 150 years before he was born. God tops that when the unnamed prophet names Josiah going to be the king 300 years before he was born. And this is a big deal. Uh, It's a big deal, not only because it's predictive prophecy, that 120 years later, the he will send the Jews back. Uh, but because God put it on his calendar. He's telling the Jews, it's on my calendar. These judgments are going to happen, and these solutions will take place. These counter judgments. Ezra chapter 1, chapter 6 covers this. The plan of our salvation is older than God putting this on the Jewish calendar. Redemption had long been on God's calendar. 1 Peter 18, knowing that you were not redeemed, that's our theme for this evening, with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Yeah, because what is life without God? Aimless. He continues, with the precious blood of Christ, that's what you were bought with, not money. As of the lamb without blemish, without spot. He was sinless. Can't say that by anybody else. Now you can, but you'd be lying or and flat out unbiblical. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. These things are easy to prove chronologically that Peter wrote this long before, uh, in the days of, of Christ, he wrote these things. And one, you know, we, we can do that. If I told you, I remember when I was a kid with those bad socks that I was texting somebody, you know it wouldn't be true. There was no texting as we know the word texting. Well, you can look at long-term history and, and, and eliminate lies and establish truths the same way. That's what people who come along say, well, they wrote that after. No, this evidence is against that. Daniel chapter 10 from that chapter, we learn that Satan is, was determined to influence the Persians against the Jews. 
through the prince of Persia, which was the, the leaders of Persia, to not bring the Jews back. Well, Cyrus is the king of Persia. And God is the king overall, and God has already had it in his word that his shepherd, Cyrus, this Gentile, would bring the Jews back. We're almost done. And uh, so, in, in their relationship with God, the Jews violated their covenant by not doing their part. We have our part. I don't have the quote that I wanted from Peter, and that's okay. Because we want to get out of here now. Because once you say I'm almost done, they're going to hold me to that. <laughs> but I do have two scriptural quotes dealing with doing our part. Isaiah 29, 13. Therefore Yahweh said, Inasmuch as these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have not removed but have removed their hearts from me. And he goes on to express that. They tell me that they're believers, but they're not doing their part. It's all lip service. And they take what men say, and they make that God's law, the commandments of men. And God didn't like that. We come to the New Testament, and in contrast, James writes the simple word, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. In back of that statement, of course, was James Doctrine, his understanding of God. To draw near to God, you've got to do it according to God. You cannot cut your own road to heaven. There's one way, and Jesus is it. It's time to pray. Our Father, uh, your word, how many times, how many times have we been very mindful that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And it it throws the darkness away. It causes us to see things not only differently, but far better. This is your doing. You get the glory. We ask you get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.